Hi folks and welcome to Plastic Grass Square. We're back with part two of our recap of UX Australia 2018. Uh, took place in Melbourne this year, lovely venue at the Grand Hyatt. Uh, and it's been really interesting to be able to sit around uh, with my colleagues from Blue Egg and have a chat about uh, everything that we learned and took away from the conference this year. All right, folks, we're ready to go. Let's join the team. And then the next morning, uh, we came back for two opening keynotes. Um, two, I have to say, like pretty inspiring talks, I thought. Um, first up, we had uh, Farai Medzima um, from Shopify, I think, wasn't he, in, yeah, uh, in Canada? Shopify. Yeah. Um, and uh, he was talking about, can being African make you bad at design? Which I guess was, was you know, it was about cultural bias and how our own cultural biases and the cultural biases within our team can have an impact on our output. Yeah. Um, who would like to go first about what they learned about this? Because I, yeah. I can see lots of smiling faces. Uh, yeah. yeah, I like. I really loved Farai's uh, talk. His present, presentation style is really great. It was you know, entertaining and engaging yeah. for the entire hour that he spoke, but it was also the content that he was, you know, saying that I could really relate to, mm -hmm. especially coming from a, an Eastern culture mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, working in the in the Western <laughs> world. <laughs> yes, yep. Because uh, these were things I never really thought about before. Mm -hmm. It kind of opened my eyes as to the way I uh, approach the workplace and mm -hmm. my style of work. I kind of always put it down to just my personality, but when Farai was explaining things like, uh, you know, different feedback styles and communication styles mm. and the uh, high power distance index between yeah. like, um, especially in Eastern cultures between a senior and a more junior um, person. Mm -hmm. It's all these things are I, things that I've done throughout my entire work life and you know, the way I treat my seniors or bosses and things like that and mm. sometimes feel like I can't. Um, tell them everything or wait for the right moment to tell them something like the story that Farai told us as well I can really relate to yeah. all those sorts of um, situations cool yeah. um, and so I, I have to ask the question now being aware of it do you feel like um, that's either it's either going to at least make it easier to navigate for you or you're like or do you feel like um, there might be changes that you make in the way that you, you behave in the workplace to work around it. Yeah, I think I think both. Like it, it will definitely make my navigating around the workplace easier now, mm -hmm. and being more comfortable with my approach yep. to the workplace. But I also will be uh, intentionally trying to change and trying to adopt uh, a more, I guess, open and communicative uh, style and communication style and things like that. Yeah. Cool. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah, that was my favourite talk, I think, yeah, for, the, for the conference. Yeah, it was yeah. great. Um, yeah, he was just amazing. So he, as well, like, um, he interwove that story about himself um, going from South Africa 
Zimbabwe, okay. Sorry, to um, to Canada and going into the workplace and finding mm. all this out for himself when he had a situation where he didn't speak up to his boss early enough about mm. some issues he was having with a, a design client. Um, and so he ended up being fired from that role and he went home and he read a book, which I'd really like to read, um, where, yeah, it explained all these key differences in the different cultures and the way they, uh, like, explain decisions or the way they deal with confrontation or mm. the way they speak to people, like their elders or their superiors. Um, and he was also interweaving all this with the story of this young jazz musician. Oh, uh, Hugh Mascella? Yeah. Yeah, Mancella. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he went from Africa to America and he kind of like met Dizzy Gillespie and met Miles Davis and they were kind of saying to him like, mm. don't try and be like us, be yourself, like that's mm. what will make you cool, that's what mm. will make you stand out and yeah, it was just quite amazing how he talked about all that sort of stuff but I, mm. I took a lot from that talk yeah. as well. Yeah, the key thing I took from that one was um, something that's so obvious when you think about it but didn't realise until um, Forrest said it um, and it was that especially in our Western culture, we tend to listen to respond and not listen to understand. Yeah. Um, and that's so, for me, as a UX researcher, it's something I, I thought myself I don't do, especially doing interviews and research. I do listen to understand, but then when it comes to my real life, I always listen to respond. Mm. Yeah. When we should listen to understand. Yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Wait a moment have the time to think and then respond. Yeah. But we live in this fast paced world that I'm always listening to respond. Mm. Yes, yeah, yeah. So that was, that, that really, really stuck with me. Well, and it's one of those things like, you know, uh, especially for, for Western societies, like, you know, the, the whole idea of conversation is one person talks, then the next person mm. talks. And then, and like, it's just one after the other after the other. And, you know, we may be lucky enough to develop the soft skill of listening to understand and then apply that in our you know in, in our work but it's so you're right it's so rare for us to yeah. um, to apply in our lives but um one thing i can tell you is if you remember to do it oh, chatting at the pub becomes so much more relaxing yes. you've got time to drink your beer um, and silence is okay silence is fine we, yeah we know this as researchers we know silence is okay yeah. mm. but yet when it comes to everyday life somehow yeah. no silence is not okay but mm. it should be yeah, and like in the past I've done work up in places like Thailand and in Asia and the first thing you do is you don't sit down and go, here's what we're doing. You have a cup of tea. Mm. You have a cup of tea and there is silence because you're drinking a cup of tea oh. and there is natural time to pause. Mm. So it's almost part of the meeting itself is it encourages pauses. You know, and I think that's... You know, and I, I, I reflect on that when I hear Farai talk and I go, yeah, that's right, I remember all that because you, you do have to have pauses and you do have to be culturally yeah. sensitive, you know. I liked what he says, like, you, you know, you, you hear rhythms we don't, you know, it's mm. that kind of, yeah. you, you hear things that we don't, you see things that we don't, you know, yeah. and I've grown up a certain way and I see things in one way and you see them in the other way, so don't try and see them my way. I really care how you see them because yeah. <laughs> that mm. makes us better. You know, and I think that was really nice. But it is, you know, sometimes we can get very frustrated with stakeholders. And I think the more we recognise that they're from different cultures and different backgrounds and they expect contextual, they expect hierarchical, they, you know, expect egalitarian or whatever points that he was talking about. I mean, we've just got to be cognisant of it and try and not get cranky about the fact that 
they're not the same as us. We've actually got to be excited about the fact they're not the same as us. Mm. You know, I think that's, you know, and plus, I mean, I agree, Dustin. I thought his, his delivery was beautiful. <laughs> and oh, and yeah. his, his presentation style was just, I think, I, I feel like his was the talk of the conference for me. Yeah. Definitely. I just yeah. think that his style was beautiful, his presentation, his slides, his storytelling, mm. his oh, ability yeah. to focus you back on him versus the slides. Now, I know a few other presenters did that. Mm. I just thought for some reason Farai really mastered that and I really did look at him Yes. It was when there was no slides up on the screens, yeah. I thought yeah. it was just it was just beautifully done. Yeah. Um, and I, you know what, Dustin, I had actually totally forgotten that it was an hour keynote. Yeah. Until you just said it then, yeah. I, I felt like you oh. know just thinking, yeah, see exactly yeah. thinking back over, I'm like, ah, oh, that was like forty minutes, mm. uh, half an hour, but it wasn't. It was an hour, um, and it is like you know I have to say, um, and I know I said some things like this last year, Adam, when after I went to US Australia for the first time. Um, as someone who has gone to more conferences than I could ever count, um, to be able to come away from even one keynote and go, oh wow, that was twice as long as I thought it was, yeah. is just a mind-blowing experience. Like because it just, I'm not used to conferences being like that. Yeah. Like normally I'm, you know, dozing off at 25 minutes <laughs> and uh, and, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, waiting for uh, waiting for something else to happen. Mm. Um, so yeah, look for eyes uh, uh, opening keynote on day day Friday let's call it um, <laughs> was awesome um, that was followed by uh, Eva Lotta Lam or Lamb I'm probably saying it wrong all I have to say about Eva, Eva Lotta's talk was I just loved her visualisation of Romeo and Juliet that was yeah, wasn't yeah, it yeah, stunning yeah, she, yeah, she deserved yeah. a round of applause for that. that was yeah. fantastic yeah. that was fantastic how do you how do you talk about the Capulets you know yeah. like, like how do you bring all of that together <laughs> and tell a coherent story on one page. Yes, yeah. in three minutes. Yeah. Like, it was amazing. But then it was also a great tool to, um, you know, show how, like, go back to the, the slides that you've been talking about previously. Yeah. Yes. It all comes back into play together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It was a great way of doing that. Definitely. <laughs> I'm just looking back at the picture now, which you can't see on the podcast, but, you know, you've got the Montagues, you've got the Capulets, you've got Romeo, you've got Juliet. You've got some sort of pictures of death, which yeah. unfortunately in Romeo and Juliet most people die, but that's most Shakespeare plays anyway. Yeah. But, but it was just it was just really neat. And then there was she had some little kind of there's a cousins thing in the middle, but that's another story. Like it was just mm. it was really nicely laid, but it's a, quite a simple diagram. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. not yeah, for Shakespeare. It's for Shakespeare it is, Shakespeare. yes. Yeah. You could understand it and that's the power of it. Yeah. Yes, totally. She yeah. Was like, like she was saying, like as human beings we are visual creatures and Yeah. That, that's me all over. I'm a very visual thinker. I'm a very visual learner. Mm. And especially within design, bringing visualization and images can have such an impact as opposed to filling a page with copy. Mm. Putting a simple visualization image in there mm. can make something go from being difficult to understand to easy to understand. Mm. Mm. And that's what we're all about. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, great, great talk. Well, and that was, you know, I th that was one of the things I really, you know, because for me, like, um, I often think of the visual and the verbal as two very separate things. Mm. Like, but, you know, and the and the diagram of, of Romeo and Juliet that she that she showed us was a perfect example of when you when you put those two together, um, they're way more powerful. You know, it's one of those things. They're more than the sum of its parts. Like, you put you add a little bit of verb you know, verbal stuff to a visualization and all of a sudden you're telling a really rich story um, that you probably couldn't tell mm. in one page of copy with one diagram or mm. one picture or whatever it might be. Mm. So yeah, that 
for me was um, was was a, a pretty key takeaway. Sorry, Dustin, you were going to say something. I, I oh, I was just going to say her talk also really inspired me because you know for the last few weeks I've been creating a lot of diagrams. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> it's really inspired me and given me uh, a sort of a more focus in a, in a direction to go down using tools and these, all the uh, methods and process that she she talked about to yeah. create clearer and you know uh, more accessible diagrams mm. for users. Mm. Awesome. Um, I have to say for myself as well, the other thing that I took away from it, which I know uh, is something that gets sort of driven home um, a lot within uh, the UX community, but it's something that I have struggled with for a long time, and that is the idea that anyone can sketch. Um, yes. Anyone can sketch note, and it kind of doesn't matter um, what it looks like. And um, Eva kind of invited us to, f that she talked about this gap between childhood and professional art. Um, yeah. And there's this huge gap in there, and she invited us to fill that gap uh, with whatever we could do, with any kind of sketch. Um, and so I think I, in the course of that afternoon, um, sketch noted three or four different things and showed the world my first drawings since childhood. Wow. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah, so uh, it was like I just kind of felt... Um, yeah, I, I was kind of s quite swept up in the whole idea of filling that gap, I guess. It's yeah, so true. Yeah. yeah. So, true. Um, so, yeah. It looked good. Well, we knew it was you. Yeah, well, you knew it was me. <laughs> we that knew was... it was you, and that's what visuals do, right? That's right, yes. <laughs> we know what's going on. We know what's happening. Um, excellent. So, that was our morning keynotes. Um, then um, there was a, quite a few different sessions after that. Um, I think uh, in one room we had uh, Tim Noonan talking about uh, voice UX. Adam, did you go to that? Or? I did. I like yeah. that. I, I mean, so Tim, um, so Tim is blind, mm -hmm. um, and Tim has been working with voice UIs for a long time. I bet. Um, and you know, he's been he's been developing things and, and was doing, um, showing us stuff that is still not even incorporated in Siri or Google um, Assistant now. We were doing the late nineties. So there's, you know, there's, there's, there's still quite a gap. But I liked how he was talking about using a synthesized voice versus a real voice. Mm. And when you, when you do that, um, and his example was around the Australian Electoral Commission and, you know, how do you actually vote below the line using a voice interface? It's, it's tricky. Wow. Right. So, and and how do you remove bias? Because if you've got a, if you've got a, a, um, a potentially synthesized voice, maybe that's going to have different intonation on the word of Smith, yeah. so you use a you use a real voice. So then you've then got to um, make sure that everybody you know whose name is said at the same sort of tone. You yeah. know, there's no mm. particular bias to anyone's name because that way you might you know say I want to go with John Smith, and for that reason they did give every candidate at, at the election the opportunity to send in like to recall up and to record their name, mm. so that the person who would say it knew how to pronounce their name. Mm. Uh, I think unfortunately. The that were a bit more difficult to say. People didn't call up, but lots of people who were called, you know, Jan Smith called up, so that was handy. But but it was but it was a good way that they they talk about it, and they also gave people plenty of chances to test it before the actual election day. You know? mm. So they didn't just go, it's election day, you've got to use this thing now. Um, it was like we're doing some dry runs, make sure you can use it, and then how do you speed it up? You know, because if you can hear things quickly, if you know how to listen quickly, how do you? speed it up so all of these things 
go into what I think is just this real big melting pot, which is voice UI. Mm. You know, we know there's an explosion happening in the next few years. We know everybody's got a Google Home in their house now or an Alexis. Um, or Alexi? Alexa. Alexa, there we go. Um, <laughs> or, or, you know, the, or the Apple HomePod the thing. HomePod as well. Yes. So yep. there's going to be all these devices in homes and everybody's talking to them and everybody's yelling at them. And, you know, how do we, how do we make it more fluid, more conversational? You know, saying, okay, Google, play the radio. Okay, Google, play, you know, turn the mute the volume up. Okay, Google, do... You've started it. Oh, Adam. my goodness, that's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Google, play and turn the music volume up. Okay, Google, do. But it either isn't available or can't be played at the moment. And that's an excellent example podcast. <laughs> this doesn't work. So, <laughs> so I guess my concern is... Google, thank you for helping me there, um, is that we really need to be cognizant of a whole bunch of different interaction types and, you know, how do you, how do you do usability testing with voice because you can't, you can't ask them to think out loud because they're listening to something being said out loud. So then they've got to remember that and then comment on the sentence or the interaction in a different way. So, you know, they're not looking at an interaction on a screen. Mm. What does that effect have on usability testing? So there's all of this, I think, that's going to blend into a really... It's a challenge for us as designers and as part of our role. We need to come up with really neat ways to build that into what we do. Well, and especially as, like, you know, overall we become more focused on the accessibility of, of the services and the products that, that we're involved in. Um, yeah, it's going, to, uh, it's going to require a lot of thinking. Mm. Mm. Um, so what else did we have uh, at the same time as that? Um, oh, I went and looked at the usability testing on Victoria's new trains, um, which was kind of cool. Like it's just a uh, it was a study um, of sort of large scale usability testing and how you test customer like physical customer flows through um, new single level train carriages and how. Um, placement of seats and centre poles um, can affect uh, access for people in mobility chairs and um, a really quite a, you know, a, a good, a solid technical presentation around how you organise and execute a large scale usability test of a thing, mm. an actual physical thing. Um, so that was pretty interesting and um, uh, last year there was a good presentation on um, the service design around wayfinding inside a train station. So the two kind of sat together quite nicely. Um, I wonder what they'll do next year. <laughs> um, all right. Light, Sydney's Light Rail. Adam, Sydney's Light Rail is not going to be finished next year. Okay, that's a whole other podcast. That is a whole other <laughs> podcast. That also won't be finished next year. Anyway, um, okay, so um, what did we all do after that? I think, um, Dustin, you went to saw um, Yogesh's talk. In the yeah. afternoon, I I saw Yogesh's talk about anticipatory design. Anticipatory design. Yep. Uh, and I really enjoyed that. I'd say that was probably my second favorite talk. Oh, cool. After, okay. Uh, Farai's one. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so Yogesh's talk about anticipatory design was really all about how to improve experiences uh, by anticipating user needs. Uh, so without having to ask them first or having the user need to input something first you mm -hmm. anticipate what they'll be needing so it kind of makes things more enjoyable uh, memorable and 
gives the user a pleasant surprise with whatever service or experience they're using. Um, so and it also went into the psychological psychological aspects uh -huh. of why that works. So um, you know things like people like uh, the feeling of being understood, yep. and if so, they report sort of greater life satisfaction on days that they felt more understood by others. Um, and there's a desire to feel important as well, like a deep sort of urge in human nature to, to feel important and anticipatory design helps to facilitate those emotions and feelings. Mm -hmm. uh, and th also the idea that surprises amplifies an experience as well, whether it be a good or a bad uh, surprise, our emotions will intensify regardless. Okay. So those are the sort of psychological aspects of why um, anticipatory design works well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely on, on the back of um, the psychological side of it. Um, the, he mentioned that, as we all know, UX designers don't ask questions that are not needed to be asked. Mm. Like, don't force your users to answer questions if you don't actually need to know the answer. Mm. However, he also, on the back of that, discussed the fact that actually don't remove every choice even if we know the answer, because giving users and giving humans the power of choice is a very powerful thing. It makes them feel in control. So actually, yes, as UX designers, we remove choice to be asked, but mm. we shouldn't remove all choice. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's very interesting. Mm. Mm. Mandel, you, no, you didn't go to that one, did you? I was in, no, I was in that one. I oh. was having some problems hearing, so people like typing behind me <laughs> on <laughs> keyboards. But um, yeah, no, I'm not You, did, you couldn't do like the old cinema turn oh. around and go. Tss. I know. Well, it was very I tricky. About it. Me and Amanda <laughs> was both sat um, at the side, wasn't we? Yeah. And there was two people behind typing notes Madly. very, very aggressively on the keyboards. Mm. But it was right in our ear. Yeah. But, yeah. You know. Well, thankfully, there's audio of all the talks. You can we can listen back to them. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yes. UXAustralia.com. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> So sorry, Amanda, I interrupted you to make a smarty comment and... Uh... No, that's okay. Yeah, no, I enjoyed the talk as well. I remember, yeah, pretty much the same takeaways. Also, he was kind of talking about as well just respecting user privacy and like, not freaking them out too much by digging up, um, I don't know, certain details. Yeah, I was trying to think of an example, but I can't remember it. Okay. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> um... I went to um, two other talks while Yogesh's talk was on. Uh, one of them was with uh, Jolene Martin from Pinterest, um, oh. which was um, about keeping it real in quantitative research. Mm. And um, it was interesting um, and just kind of backed up a few of the things that we sort of do here uh, at Blue Egg, which is, you know, uh, quantitative research by itself um, is useful, but if you can harness the power of both quantitative and qualitative research and pull the strengths out of both uh, approaches, you end up with better, re better results. Um, that was the sort of the core takeaway from that. Um, and then um, there was a PhD student from UTS, Michelle uh, Pickrell, who was talking about her research, um, well, her PhD research that she's doing with um, stroke patients. Um, and how to deal with barriers to qualitative research in hospitals, um, which sounds like it would have actually plugged in quite well to some of the stuff that Ash was saying on day one. Um, but it was just, it was really quite interesting and there was some um, 
there's a whole stack of obstacles that um, that Michelle's been able to navigate around, um, just in terms of ethics committees and uh, how many different ethics committees she's had to deal with, and um, you know, getting consent from patients who might be nonverbal, um, and you know, just being aware that you know, with stroke patients in particular, you know, sometimes they can be quite um, you know wily but also um, have certain dietary restrictions. So you take them away from their bed mm. um, to do an interview with them. And then all of a sudden, for argument's sake, if they're, if they're nil by mouth because they haven't got their, their gag reflex back, they're asking you for a cup of tea or flagging down people for a cup of tea. And next thing you know, you've got someone who, you know, <laughs> who can't swallow sitting there in an interview with you drink, drinking tea mm. and it's going bad fast. Right. Um, yeah, so just like little, just little things like that that you as a researcher have to pay attention to when you're when you're in a hospital. You know, make sure that you kind of know all this stuff. Um, it was a, it was actually a really um, a really fun little presentation for such a serious subject. I have to say, mm. Mm. Um, I did also see disability as a driver of innovation in UX. Yep, um, that was that was really interesting. Hamish wasn't there, unfortunately, but Zoe was there. She had a pretty crook voice, poor thing. So she got Rowan to help her out for mm -hmm. some of the time, Rowan Irvine, <laughs> but um, it w there was a couple of really cool, just quick takeaways from that, I think one was a really good one about um, Microsoft does a really cool um, inclusive design guide, which you can Google, which is an in inclusive design toolkit, Oh, cool! Um, and that's pretty thorough in terms of how can you design for all different types of potentially disabilities and all different accessibility issues. Um, she also talked about WCAG being pretty... Um, it's a it's an okay base, but it's it's really got a lot of gaps, mm. and it's going to be replaced with something called Silver in a couple of years to come. Um, but until then, we've got WCAG, and it, it only gets updated every ten years. So it's been updated once every ten years. So it's pretty. The current one just was just updated. Yep. Um, but it it does sort of highlight that you know technology moves pretty fast, mm. and we're only updating these accessibility guidelines every ten years. So it really doesn't, it, it shows, it really highlights quite a big gap. And Microsoft seems to have filled that, but Microsoft does that at a cost. Of course. Right, but there are inclusive design toolkits and stuff that you can get for free. Mm. Um, but it does also seem to be a, something that they make money from. Mm. So it's a pity that we haven't got other tools and, and we're not more proactive with those kind of accessibility guidelines. Yeah. More generally. Um, mm. But the, the toolkit's great, so you can download that and Google that. Awesome. Um, then it was, we're into the afternoon of uh, Friday of the conference now. Um, we had some 10 minute talks, they're always cool and one of the things I really love about the 10 minute talks is that um, it's a great opportunity for newer presenters to kind of, you know, get a feel for presenting to a really large audience on a really fancy stage. Um, Back in mind, I did a 10 minute talk. See? Quite a few years ago now. <laughs> wasn't that long ago. It was that long ago. It was only 2016. Come on, mate. 2016. Or 2015. Mm, 2014. Really? Mm. That was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> um, so, yeah, I, and it also, like, you know, they tend to be a little bit more playful and, mm. and, um, and fun, which is sort of a, a nice little brain break um, on the Friday afternoon. Um, so then... Uh, there was a whole stack of um, presentations on the Friday Arvo, like I said. Um, good microcopy uh, seemed to be popular amongst the team. Um, who went to that? Yeah, 
I went to that. Mm. Um, I, I really enjoyed that talk. Yeah. Um, just because some of the projects I've worked on have involved bad microcopy. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. And it was you know, good to be told why it's so important in what we do yep. uh, as like an informational and navigational tool uh, for users to, you know, help them complete a task or perform an action on a website or app. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what uh, Richard talked about was that microcopy is really helpful because it provides context to the user, tells them, you know, what they're looking at, uh, what mm-hmm. they should do next, uh, it helps sets expectations for them so what will happen next um, mm. and what will happen if they do a certain thing and then that equals to confident actions for the user yep um, and he also gave you know an example of when that doesn't or isn't implemented um, so he gave an example of him trying to cancel a subscription to a product mm-hmm. And it was really, really difficult. He had to jump through so many different pages and hoops just to be able to find the button that would lead him to the cancellation process. Oh, wow. Nothing should be that difficult. What a pain. Which was very apt because I actually went through this same experience of the example that Richard gave the week before. Mm. Did you really? Yes. Mm. Huh. Oh. And I was a very frustrated user. And I even got to the point where I just quit the whole... Um, a whole program instead of figuring out the answer yeah. out. Mm. Well, that's what they want you to do. They, oh, I just quit. You just, oh, you I just, just quit. quit. Oh, I didn't. Okay. I, I couldn't get to the answer. Okay. So I just awful quit, <laughs> and I've not been wow. back on since because yeah. I couldn't find the answer. Yeah, that's not what they want. No, they wanted. No. Me to, they wanted me to upgrade, but I yeah, was yeah. not upgrading. <laughs> but I like Richard bringing in the um, the example of Slack, which talks about microcopy and tone and being able to be playful and also bringing in some humor and mm. you know being able to it's it's a it's a copy as an affordance which is telling you what's going on mm. as well as an animation and other things that are happening but it really all just supports you know a, an action or a thing that's that's going on at the moment that really helps the user feel more comfortable that mm. something's actually happening mm. you know and i think that copy and tone has to be moderated depending on the brand and the tone of voice yeah. you can't always be as playful as slack i don't think no, i think yeah. slack is very playful and i mm. think that in certain situations you, you couldn't get away with it but i do think you can still have a there is a, a middle ground where you can still be have a little bit of fun <laughs> yeah um but also treat whatever the the messaging is with the appropriate seriousness if it mm. needs to be but no, i like yeah. that and richard's going to be talking at our enterprise ux Excellent. Just ask on the back of Richard's talk um, that really stood with me as well was especially in your copy, make sure you're ethical and make sure you're you're reasonable. Mm. Um, Don't throw users down the garden path. Mm. Don't take them down the garden Mm. path. Just tell them the right answer there and then. Don't make them guess. And don't make them select something they don't necessarily want to select. Excellent. And I also d- jumped into Andy's talk after Richard's as well. Ah, oh, right, okay. Um, and there was a couple of things, um, and I thought Andy's great, because Andy also runs the UX London. Mm-hmm. It was good to see him speaking in Melbourne. Um, there's a couple of key things I took out of it, and it's just that sort of, you know, we can't treat all designers as the same, because we are all individuals, we are all different. Yep. But I like some of the, the organisational behavioural things that he does with Clear Left, which is... You know, once a month, everybody goes to, we all go as a team to a museum. It's done in the day. It's not about drinking. 
You know, I think mm. it's done on work time. You know, and I think all of that stuff versus saying, okay, everybody, we've got a work trip, it's on your weekend. You know, I think mm. all of that, it's a really, I think it adds to, to, to John's talk. You know, it's, it's all supporting the fact that we're creating a environment and a behaviour which makes people feel comfortable and doesn't make them feel like they're, they're not, you know, happy in the environment, but also that they've got that comfort to make mistakes and do whatever. But also, it's not a drinking culture too, you know, and coming to Farai's talk, like some of us like a glass of wine, some of us don't like a glass of wine. Mm. Yeah. And I think yeah. that... Yeah, that was the whole baked yeah. bread instead of going yeah. out for a drink. Yeah. Yes, yeah. You know, being, so... Be inclusive, yeah. you've got everybody in your team. 100%, and I think that's the thing. So if, you know, if we go to a, a, a museum in the day, and it's not about drinking, it's about enjoying a, mm. you know, design piece at a museum and discussing that. In the yeah. afternoon with you know some lunch or a, a coffee or something you know mm. so mm -hmm. I think all of those things I'd like to do them you know, mm. so I'd, I'd like to do that from this month you know that kind of stuff so I, I like that you know it's you know, how do we it, 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 it was a nice blend in from Farai's talk yeah definitely just reminding us well here's some actionable things that you can do to match up with the fact mm. that you've got different cultures that you work with you know yeah. so that yeah. was that was neat for me and it's such a like you know I know um, in in many different parts of, of Australian society, whether it's your work environment or sporting environment or, you know, all sorts of things. It's just such a default solution to getting people together. Let's go to the pub. Let's mm. go to the pub and get drunk yeah. and make mm. idiots out of Well, maybe or maybe not make idiots out of ourselves, but mm. that whole going for a drink thing is, is such a default position. Mm. Um, and really, there is a lot of other things that can, like yeah. you say, like going to a museum or, yeah, it's... Yeah. There's plenty of other ways to, to, to build rapport in a team. We're and quite close to Gelato Messina, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen it outside. It, it is yeah. also 17 degrees outside. Of just, uh, that's right. That's tropical. Yeah. <laughs> tropical. <laughs> Come from England, that's tropical. Yeah, true. Um, so uh, I went and saw a couple of short talks that afternoon. One was, um, uh, they were both... Um, by some people from the CSIRO. One was uh, about uh, weather apps and um, working with uh, farmers um, to do user research around weather apps and how they, they sort of consume weather information. Um, the really interesting thing about that talk I found was um, uh, a user researcher um, went into the field with an actual climate scientist from, from CSIRO um, and there was a, a bit of talk about how the user researcher felt nervous about being out in the field with an actual scientist and, you know, was sort of afraid that their research techniques would be laughed at and um, the scientist admitting that, you know, they, on the face of looking at user research techniques, they go, that's ridiculous, why would you do any of that stuff? Um, but then discovering by being in the field and seeing the interviews and seeing the process, discovering the power of the kind of techniques that um, are, are used when when you you know doing actual people research as opposed to number research, I guess, mm. um, and how that could be useful for scientists to plug into their um, modelling of farmer behaviour and, and stuff like that, as opposed to just, just kind of relying on raw numerical data. Um, so that was that was pretty cool. Um, one of the sort of surprising little things I found out in that talk was that most farmers have 
upwards of 20 to 25 different weather apps on their phone. Mm. Really? Wow. Yeah, depending, because they all give different kinds of weather information. Mm. Um, and with, with differing degrees, degrees of reliability depending on the time of year and mm. um, yeah, so that was kind of cool. I didn't even know that many weather apps existed. <laughs> Me either, but apparently they do. Yeah. Um, so we're nearly at the end of the, of the conference now. Two closing keynotes. Mm. Uh, so we had, um, first up we had uh, Bill Derushi talking about design careers in the science fiction future. Um, I love science fiction. Yeah, me too. Um, <laughs> he kind of really did talk about robots. Yeah, he did. Yeah. He did talk about robots. Um, but yeah, it was, um, I, I found that talk really interesting. And it was just this kind of rolling idea about, you know, um, as aspects of technology change what does that mean for for us as designers like what kind of designers are going to be required to you know create things in the future and minimizing bias and data Interesting. Yeah. How do we minimize bias and data? Yeah. But I like the timeline, you know. So I wish we're not for me. Yeah. <laughs> no, so that's right. Yes. Some of the younger members of the Yeah. Um, Definitely not for me either. Uh, you know, talking about that, where are we, you know, in ten year blocks, and where yeah. are you at in your career? And I thought that was it's a neat way to put it in saying, well, you know, actually these are going to be real challenges in ten, five, probably five years time, mm. or ten. 20, 30 years time, what's it going to look like? And yeah, that timeline was really career. interesting because mm. as, a, a, as somebody early on in their career, I always think in my head, I'm not experienced enough or I don't know enough. And I always challenge that behaviour and think, okay, maybe I am. Mm. But actually looking at the timeline, mm. being like, no, Leanne, you've got another... 40 yeah. years ahead of you here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. time's going to change yeah. in the next five, in the next ten years. Mm. So actually, will we ever know enough? Will I ever be experienced enough? <laughs> because in ten years, it's going to be completely different. And mm. we're going to be learning new stuff again. Yeah, yeah I think you're always learning, aren't you? You're always, yeah, you're, you're always, always learning. learning. And yeah, it's something that, that, that stuck with me from that talk, being like, actually, just remember that you're always learning and there's always going to be new challenges ahead. Yeah. I think to what I got out of the core of it though is that we, you know, we come up with many different types of design iterations mm. past what we know now, but you still got people. Mm. Yes. Yeah. The yeah. constant in thirty years' time is people. People, definitely. The technology will be massively different, right? I'll probably be ahead in a jar. <laughs> the people will remain. Yes. And yeah. I think that's. Yeah. And that's the essence know. of our job. Yeah. It's mm. like human sense design, and we're all yeah. human. And like Adam says, in 20, 30 years' time, the essence of that is still going to be us, still going to be humans. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and as long as we understand that aspect, yeah. which we do, yes. then I think we'll be pretty safe mm. as, as well as evolving with the changing technologies. But mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah good, good talk, great talk. It was. Uh, and then our closing keynote, which was uh, Alan Cooper. Um, talking ostensibly about the Oppenheimer moment that I, I feel like the talk was about a lot of different things. It's a fairly ominous name to give you talk. It is, and all, see the thing about it is is that like as soon as, as soon as I read that the talk was that, all that I could hear is Oppenheimer in my head from that interview after the Trinity test in New Mexico yeah. where he talks about reading <laughs> the Bhagavad Gita 
I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. And that's all that I could hear. Like, until until Alan actually... Okay. Well, yeah. well but I mean, that's... And in lighter news on this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's what the Oppenheimer <laughs> moment is. And, yeah. like, you know, and it's about, you know, that moment of realisation that something you have created has gone completely awry. Um, and and has has just gone nuts and he's doing something that you never really expected it to do. Mm. I mean, Alan's clearly a pioneer <coughs> when it comes to UX, right? Like, he's been mm. working in the field for a long time. Yeah. He and his wife worked very closely. They built Cooper up and sold that recently last year. Mm. So, I, you know, obviously on his on his ranch they've had time to reflect and I think mm. there's lots of pictures of chickens. Chickens. Which, um, yeah. yeah, I love the chickens. Chickens are good. Um, but, I th- but it's interesting how you can find inspiration from, you know, some clarity and I think that he's had some time to have some non-client sort of clarity yes. and, and see and hear um, what he thinks is, is true and, I, you know, you know, that moment when you do realise your design has kind of gone past your, you know, constraints or what you thought it was going to be used for and it's mm. now gone mm. and it's used for maybe a dark purpose, you know, yeah. but the thing for me was about that externalities, you know, in terms of we, we create these externalities that we dismiss. Mm-hmm. You know, these externalities we just kind of dismiss. You know, we've got plastic, but we just dismiss it because mm-hmm. we, yeah. it's not our problem, you know. Yeah. We're actually just passing that externality down yeah. to somebody else to be their problem. So I think mm-hmm. owning those externalities and, and how that applies to our designs is, is interesting. The, the thing that I took away from that um, was the example that you gave about the rubbish truck. Mm and said there's never an away. Mm, Your wish yeah. doesn't get yes. taken away. away. Yeah. Like what is away? Away yeah. is, uh, is, is down the road. Away is out of Lucas Heights across the road from Hanstow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so there's no <laughs> away. So yeah, exactly, like own it and yes. do something about it. Yeah. And it's your responsibility, nobody else's, because you're, you're here now and it's, this is your world. Yeah. So own it for our ancestors mm. and make it a better place for our ancestors, mm. which is very powerful. Mm. Well, and it is, you know, that, that whole idea that he's come up with of, of ancestry thinking mm. and where he's, you know, what he's saying is that, you know, um, not doing evil is great. What a fabulous start. But really, you know, what he's, what he's encouraging us to think about and encouraging us to be is to be a better ancestor mm. and, you know, realise that there is no way. Yeah. That everything we do leaves a an imprint and an impact, um, and that we really need to think about, you know, yeah. how how to deal with that kind of stuff. Yeah. And unfortunately, by the time this podcast goes out, that that's the opportunity will be lost. But he is talking tonight. <laughs> oh, he is too at uh, ICA, isn't he? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Same talk. Uh, similar talk. It's more about a Q and A about being a good ancestor. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, is that, is that a term that he coined, ancestry thinking? I think so. I have a feeling that I've seen it on his website with a TM next to it. So, uh, oh, really? Oh, uh, <laughs> I, I, I could be making that up. But, yeah, I think... Uh, it's you know, a good way to think about it. It really is, actually. Because he, yes. he framed it in the way that it's okay. It's okay saying, just do good. Don't, yeah. be, don't be evil, just do good. Yeah. But what is good? Mm. Yes. Yeah, what is good? Like, yeah. <laughs> that yeah. could mean anything. It gives you a good compass, doesn't it? Because yeah. a, a, a good line to go, what is your mm. sort of North Star approach? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so it's great. It's a great term. Well, and the other thing that I kind of, that I really liked uh, about it as well is that, you know, last year we had Mike Montero come and, like, tear the stage up and shout at us all and tell us who was 
terrible and who isn't terrible and mm. that we should all be doing something about it and like it was quite um, quite ranty I guess is probably the best way I can describe it mm. um, and Alan's uh, presentation this year was essentially the same message is that you know um, we're designers we're political whether we like it or not um, and we have a responsibility to make change mm. um, and the messages are essentially the same it's just that Alan's was delivered um, with actual solutions and ways that we can probably do things. Mm -hmm. um, I felt quite fired up after Mike's talk last year. I was ready to burn things down. Um, <laughs> like, like literally wanted to go and set fire to things. Um, <laughs> um, I, I think that's the impact he looks for. He was very shouty last year. He was very shouty and I really enjoyed it. And like I said, I was quite literally, I was ready to like, you know, um, start the revolution, seize the um, means of production. Um, and burn the Reichstag or whatever it might be, uh -huh. but um, yeah, I, I feel like it's it, there's this kind of nice sort of way that those two keynotes over two years have sat together, mm. um, and and hopefully inspires the design community, uh, both here in Australia and internationally, to you know really think about what it is that we're doing and what it is that we're putting out into the world, um, both in our work lives and our personal lives. Yeah, mm. totally agree. And those students that are doing these university courses. Yeah. Inspire them too. Mm. Yeah. Cool. It's cool. I just wanted to say too, thanks to Steve Batty and the team at UX Australia. Yes. Thanks for having us involved, and it was very cool to sponsor the drinks and also to be a lanyard sponsor. We really enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks, Steve. You were super easy to work with. Um, it was a, a great pleasure being part of the uh, part of the conference this year. Um, and thank you to everyone who made the time to come out and talk and um, you know put it together a presentation. I'm sorry we didn't get to everything. Um, it would be nice if we could have, but uh, the talks that we missed, I really look forward to listening to later on um, the UX Australia SoundCloud. All right, folks, I think that's it. Awesome, right? Yeah, thank, thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Folks, we'll be back with a new episode really soon. If you wanted to get in touch and have a chat to me, if you'd like to be on the show, please shoot me an email to aaron at blueegg.com.au or you can hit us up on Twitter at blueegg.tweets. Folks, please don't forget, rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you find us. Uh, it really helps our profile. It helps other people find the show. Thank you once again for your company and I look forward to being with you again soon.